tonight I want to talk about um, the search for significance. This can also be kind of called the search for self-esteem. It can be called anything like that because significance lies in our what we think about ourselves or what we're searching for to get significance. Um, I don't know about you, but significance is something that I want. Do you guys want to be significant in your life? Do you want to be remembered for anything? I for sure do. Oh, thank you, darling. <laughs> you knew exactly what I was doing. A lot of people ask me, how do you figure out what you're going to talk about? I'm like, well, mostly I just copy other people, just so you know. So this is this book called The Search for Significance, and it's by Robert McGee, and it's really good if you guys want to buy it. It has a little workbook in the back. But um, it's, I'm going to go through that, and tonight is going to be part one, and later on down the road we'll do part two, okay? But we're going to talk about the search for significance. Let me fix my um, iPad here for a second. Okay. I first got this idea. Do you guys, very many of you have prophetic dreams or dreams that you remember? Yeah? If you do, I don't do this all the time, but if you do, you should get up and have a dream journal and, and write that stuff down and look for themes in your dreams. The themes that I have in my dreams, you're going to crack up when I tell you this. I, don't, I haven't had them so much lately, but my themes for most of my life have been about an apocalyptic event. Weird, huh? Right? Um, what'd you say? I know. Um, mostly about um, some kind of event happens and... Uh, we have to like go on or, or I think that's why I'm a prepper like why I like to prep and have things on hand so that if something happens I can keep on going kind of thing but those of anyway my point is I take my dreams seriously when I have dreams I take them seriously I get most of my dreams in the morning that's when I get most of my dreams and I wake up and I ask myself Lord is this a spiritual dream or is it something just for my subconscious is it something you want me to to um, think about and so I I was thinking about what I wanted to preach this weekend and I had a dream about preaching, funny enough. And the dream was about significance. How do we, um, how do we become significant or, or obtain sig significance? And I woke up with um, the idea of the fear of the Lord. And most people, when they think of the fear of the Lord, it's um, like a wrathful God or an authoritative personality or something like that. And we need to... Um, have reverence and fear. And that's exactly what I am talking about. But really more than that, for me, we need to have fear of God more than fear of anything else. In other words, God's um, priorities and, and what God says and does and wants has to be more important to us than anything else we come into contact with. And fear of man, fear of failure, fear of all those kinds of things. And so when I first thought about, man, I don't like, want to preach on fear of God because that sounds so negative and old wineskin and whatever, whatever all that is that I don't want to preach on. But at the same time, I've been convicted lately because there is inside of me a fear of, a, of lack of approval, a fear of man, if you will a fear of someone disapproving of me or thinking I'm um, a religious nut or uh, whatever that might be. I was um, at poker on Thursday night. You guys know I go to poker. And it is, you know, straight up a secular event. There is nothing uh, spiritual about it except that I come into contact every single night with people who are hurting and they're deceived, and they have physical ailments, and these are exactly the people that Jesus went to and ministered to 
when he was here on earth. He went to the den of prostitutes and the taxpayers. He went to poker all the time and ate with them and talked with them and really didn't hold anything back, right? He didn't say, well, I'm not really Jesus because I'm afraid you might, you know, I might be disapprove of by you, might mock me, might do all those things. He never did that. The only people who really mocked him or pushed back on him were who? The religious people. Do you mind getting me that water? Thank you, Sue. And so it was really convicting to me because um, Mark, he's 70 years old, and he's the, he's our dealer, not drug dealer, not drug dealer, <laughs> cards dealer. And he has been having a hard time dealing the cards because he's got some kind of weird something or other in his arm, and he's been going to the VA hospital, and they can't figure it out, and now he's trying to do something else. And immediately when I was there, you know, and I'm all around, we're all playing poker, and the Lord's like, you need to go pray for him. I'm like, well, not right in the middle of this, right? Like, not right in the middle of poker. I mean, what would people think, right? I'm like, well, I'll do it at break. I'll come up and do it at break. And, of course, I left, and I forgot all about it. But I was really convicted because I'm like, what am I afraid of? Do I believe in Christianity or not? Do I believe in what I'm selling or don't I? Like, what is my allegiance to, right? And I do believe in the healing power of the Lord, not just physically, but especially relationally, especially um, with the course of our lives. It, it's, it's everything. It makes all the difference. And I really felt like the Lord is, man, you've got to decide what you're going to stand for. I know, right? And I was really convicted because I'm like, God's like, do you fear man's disapproval than you, than you fear obeying me? I mean, that was the real question he was asking me, right? And I was like, wow, I need to, I, I need to really sit down and have a conversation with myself and ask myself, what am I afraid of? Because I feel like this is kind of getting off topic, but I don't care because this is where I'm going. I feel like, especially now in this day and age, this arena that we are living in, our world is going to live or fall on our boldness. Like our boldness and the passion that we have to share the solution with this world is going to make or break our country, our world, our community. I mean, you want to change the country? We need to start being bold about what we know to be true. Not in an ugly way. Not in a um, competitive, divisive way. But in a way of like, you're hurting and I have the answer. It's like as if we were doctors who know the answer to cancer and a cancer patient comes in and we won't give them we won't give them the healing solution because we're afraid of what they might say. That's not our job. I mean, we're doctors, right? We have the solution. We can point to the ultimate healer, but we won't give it out. What's that kind of fear all about? So I was really convicted about that. And then, of course, with my mediation clients and stuff, sometimes I get really afraid to, um, because as you may or may not know, your business is made on your Google reviews, Right? If people don't like you, they can leave you a scathing Google review and your business can tank, right? And right now I've got five stars all across the board. I get all these, um, you know, referrals and people look me up and they're like, you have a five-star review. I want to come to you. Well, sometimes there are Christians or people at my table and I'm like, well, I really can't say what I want to say because I might offend them. I might turn them off. And God's like, man, who do you fear? Who do you fear? Do you fear me enough to obey me and what I've called you to do? Are you afraid of that Google review? 
or that personality or whatever. Poor Jim. The other day I was um, doing a mediation. Chris was out of the office, so I was using his. We have a little tiny closet, broom, broom closet that we put Chris into and shut the door and lock him in when we don't want to see him. And uh, I was in there doing a little Zoom mediation, and these people, kind of the worst ones I've ever had to me. Usually they're bad to each other, but they were being bad to me. And I had to be like, listen, straighten up here because I'm not going to stay doing this with you if you're going to treat me this way. I'm the mediator. At, at the very least, be polite to strangers is what you feel like saying, right? And in the back of my head, I'm like, man, I can't take them to task because they might give me a bad review. But then I remembered what you permit, you promote. And I'm like, I need to take charge of this, right? And I can't permit them to treat me badly. Poor Jim had to listen to it. My whole point is he can hear me through the paper-thin walls we have, and he was like, I didn't know what was going on in there. I'm like, well, it's having to take control because they they're nutso, you know. But God's really been talking to me about if we're going to be significant, if we're going to be people who change the world, we're going to have to get our priorities right. We're going to have to get our identity straightened away so that we're not subject to all this fear of man, right? So that's kind of my, my prelude. And, of course, our significance is always, always rooted in our identity. That's everything. If, if there's one thing we go to the mat for, it's our, it's our identity. And that's why the world is so screwed up. I can't tell you guys, I can't keep up with pansexual, this fluid. Um, what are all the sexual identities these days? Do you guys even know? There's, there's all, I, I don't know what there is. Attracted to everything. Maybe you're, and, and sexuality being divorced from gender, I don't get that. Because you know why I'm not supposed to get that. Because you know what? Those are identity issues that the enemy is trying to mess us up with. He's trying to muddy the waters, and people are so, they're so desperate for significance, they're looking for it in these identities that don't even exist, that aren't even real. And Thank you. Thank you, my husband. And I've been kind of even reluctant to say that because, you know, it's not politically correct. I don't want to offend anybody or hurt anybody who even struggles in their sexuality. That's not my heart. But there comes a time where we are not giving the cancer patients their cancer medicine if we don't tell them the truth. We're just perpetuating their disease. And so somehow we have to find a way as Christians to speak the truth in love because it is the solution to a dying world. It is the solution. It is their, it is the answer that they're looking for and they don't know any different. And we need to be, we need to have compassion on that instead of being like, man, they're messed up or man, they're screwed. You know what? They might not have had anybody in their life to point the way to the one who gives us our identity and they're doing the best they can do. They're hurting, they're in pain, they're looking for a solution from the world. And we need to be like, oh, you poor things. Let me show you what the real answer is. This started in the garden. The serpent, this is in Genesis chapter 2. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? we may eat of the of the fruit 
from the trees in the garden? The woman replied, it is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Genesis 1, 3, 1 through 5. If we look closely, there's a lot of lies embedded in this account, but the last one is, you will be like God. Eve traded God's truth for a lie. She, she's not God. Humanity is not God. We may be made in his image, but we are not God. But when we take godhood into our hands, now all of a sudden we got an identity issue. We have identity problems, and we start trying to medicate ourselves to um, take care of the pain that accompanies having identity issues. And this is still going on. The form of humanism, which is humanity is the center of the universe. And then the newest religion, which is, I don't even know what to call it, the religion of science. The religion of science, that all authority and all answers lie in the arena of science. That's the newest lie going around. Forget about the, the religion of woke. I won't even go there. Okay? And to be fair, the church bears some responsibility for the situation. We've either failed to speak the truth in love, or we've been purveyors of lies as well. We've been used by the enemy to perpetuate lies because we've been more afraid of man than of God. I mean, even sitting here right now as a woman delivering a message is a huge step of faith, let me tell you right now. In our faith tradition, there's very few women that would lead what we would call an evangelical-style church. There are women in more liberal branches of Christianity, but they are not generally promoted or accepted in an evangelical, let's just say, conservative thought process. We need to ask ourselves why. Are we perpetuating lies? Are we participating in that? What have we done to perpetuate anything that may not be from the Lord? The church does that a lot because we sometimes get so steeped in tradition, we'd rather be traditional than truthful. We'd rather follow tradition than say, Holy Spirit, what do you say about this in this time? Because, because then you have to go out on a ledge and you have to risk the disapproval of people who may be in a power over you or may have the authority to give or take away something from you. It's a huge risk. Speaking as a woman, does anyone, any woman say amen to that? Thank you. All right. Thank you, Aaron. I'm a pretty good salesman for what I believe in. I went to Joe. When did I see you, Joe? Wednesday, I went to see him for my hip. He did my, moved my hip around and stuff like that. And he said something to me. I don't know if you were saying it as a compliment or not, but I take it as a compliment. And he said, um, I know if you're happy, you'll tell everyone about it or something like that. What did you say? Do you remember? Something like that. Yeah, exactly. And the point, I think, and like I said, it's a compliment. I take it as a compliment. Um, but the truth is, I have a big mouth, probably in a good way and in a bad way, right? <laughs> and when something good happens to me, I want to tell everyone about it. 
And when I have a paradigm shift, I want to share that with everybody. Um, if God reveals something to me, I want to talk about it. I tend to talk about it. In that way, I'm a verbal processor, right? I would say I'm a verbal processor. The downside of that is, you know, you can process too much, right? <laughs> you have to keep your processing positive, I think. But the upside is if I believe in something, I have no problem in selling it. Because I believe in it. All right, so let's jump into the meat of this message. We all need significance. This author, Robert, says, in the innermost parts of human beings is the need to be significant. Whether labeled self-esteem or self-worth, the feeling of significance is crucial to humanity's emotional, spiritual, and social ability and is the driving element within the human spirit. Understanding this single need opens the doors to understanding our actions and our attitudes. Because I've been doing mediations for, long, so, for so long, and because we've done so many really good marriage studies, I feel like I've acquired kind of a firsthand knowledge of divorce mediations and motivations involved in that and relationship pitfalls. And one of the biggest commonalities I've seen in divorced people once they get divorced is the desire to immediately get back into another relationship. Some people stop and pause and let them, themselves heal or take time to reflect on, you know, their new life and all that things. But a lot of people throw themselves back into the dating world. Um, I don't know about you. I mean, when Chris and I, we met on Match, right? How many years ago? Nine years ago? Nine years ago? Now they've got Match.com. Tell me what they got, you guys. Match.com, Bumble, Tinder, Plenty of Fish, um, farmers, farmers Only or something like that, right? Um, I mean, am I right? Um, they've got, uh, what is it? Hinge. Oh, I've never, Hinge. Okay. Yeah, Our Time. Our Time. Um, what's the one where you emotionally, Christian Mingle? They, there's one called Crossed Paths, which is like Across Paths. That's another Christian one. Um, what's the other one where you're like emotionally take that test? E-Harmony. Thank you. Silver Singles. I love Farmers.com. Or is it Farmers.com or Farmers Only? Yeah. That shows you. I just want you to know. And then, of course, that's represented by our day and age because of technology. But I just want you to see how many people are desperate to get in another relationship because in their mind, a relationship will solve their identity issues. And if there's one thing we have really hammered on in our marriage class is that your significant other is not responsible for your happiness and not responsible for your identity issues. And boy, that's a countercultural message right there. Because the first thing people want to do, and they, it is interesting, whatever, I think it was Andy Stanley who said, our culture has a low tolerance for emotional pain. So what do you do? You just jump right into another relationship. Because that emotional pain is not to be tolerated. Right? That's a lie from the pit of hell, people. Oh, no, I lost my thing. Here it is. So anyway, that's what I've learned about mediations and dating after you're 50. I mean, it's brutal out there. Because especially when you've gone through a divorce, 
you are crazy with needing some kind of assurance that people want you and love you. Your, your identity is, is on the floor. In the same way, one of the biggest issues in marriage, not just after you single, is unmet expectations. The biggest one being, I expect you to make me happy. Or it's your job to make me happy. The recent studies we've been taking kind of messing this up all in a good way, right? They don't even let us go there anymore. Thank goodness for those studies. And that people will actually say out loud, it is not your spouse's job to make you happy. You are getting your identity from the, your creator. It's your job to figure out how you're supposed to help your spouse. What? Nobody teaches that. Nobody talks about that. No one talks about self-sacrifice and submitting yourself to the other person. We all talk about how they meet my needs. One of my greatest joys is to empower people to explore and develop gifts that God's put on their lives, to invite them to a deep level of significance and destiny. I love to release leaders into their God-given domains. I love it that Joe is doing the men's group because I picked him out, right? It makes me feel significant. Um, Bob, who's not here, you guys pray for him too. His head, he's got those headaches. His um, migraines have been really bad. He's trying to wean off that stuff. Anyway, um, Bob was talking to me about Joe. He goes, Joe's got a real gift. He's, he's a real pastor's heart. I think he's going to do really well in this class. I'm like, yeah, I know, because I picked him out. Because I, I said that he should be doing it. I said, um, if I could just, <laughs> I, one of my, I don't know if you guys ever do truth or uh, strengths finders, but it's this personality test that you have 34 different strengths. And my, one of my top strengths is called arranger, which is kind of a fancy name for boss people around kind of thing, right? But let's just say it's a good name, arranger. If I could just be the arranger of everything like that in a positive way, I would be so happy. If I could be the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain just pulling the strings, Joe, you do this. No, you do this. Now you do that. Let's have a, let's have a community picnic over here. Kelly, you lead worship. If I could just do that, I would be in heaven because that's what I was created to do. I was created to look at different people and say, Sue, you could lead a marriage class. You're really good at that. Maybe you should do that. You know, and help people to get past their fear or whatever it might be and step into some new, some new horizon. I love doing that. Thank you. So self-worth, the formula is this. Self-worth equals performance plus others' opinion. And separated from God and his word, people have only their abilities and the opinion of others on which to base their worth and ultimately the way they feel about themselves. So Steve says, here's Steve, that our attempts to meet our needs for success fall into two broad categories. I love this kind of stuff, you guys. This to me is the meat of life. Why do we exist? How do we get, how do we become better? What does God have for our destiny? That's what I love. Compulsiveness and withdrawal. Compulsive people look like this. They're the perfectionists. They work extra hours. They expend extra effort. They try to say just the right things to achieve success and please others. They have a compulsive desire to be in control of every situation. If the job isn't perfect, if they aren't dressed right or considered the best, then they work even harder. And woe to the people who get in their way and if they're char even if they're charming and personable, 
Many times it's to manipulate others to contribute to their success and make them look better. Those are compulsive people. People who withdraw are like this. They want to avoid failure and disapproval by avoiding risks. They gravitate to people who are comforting and kind. They skirt relationships that might demand vulnerability and consequently risk rejection. They may appear easygoing but are usually running from potential situations or relationships that might not succeed. Does anybody recognize themselves in these two categories? Anybody? What'd you say? You refuse to say? I'll take that as a yes. And frankly, we probably, we fall into both these categories at some time of our life, but sometimes our personality will lend us to one or the other, or how we were raised will lend us to one or to another. You know, we talk a lot about generational uh, influences in our lives, and this is really the truth, you guys. And this is kind of bad news, I feel like, as a parent, because I'm like, what have I done to my kids? You know, how can I reverse what I've done to my kids in terms of making them perfectionistic or feeling like failures or, or avoiding risk or any of those things? I need, I want to look back at me and say, how do I reverse the curse in that arena. And then I got to look at myself and say, what have I, what was I raised in that, that made me go one way or the other in terms of my identity? I want to tell you a story of Stacy. As a young girl, she became pregnant when she was 17. She gave her baby up for adoption. And only her family and a few friends ever knew the truth. Later on, she met and fell in love with a compassionate man named Ron and married him because she feared his rejection. She never told him about her baby and given it up for adoption. Over the years, she concealed her guilt and grief until finally she broke down and told her husband the whole truth. Surprisingly, her husband did not respond in the way she expected. He understood the agony that his wife carried for so many years and loved her in spite of her past. But she was unable to accept his forgiveness and knowing she had failed, According to society standards, she refused to forgive herself, and she left her husband. Now, I want you to know something, you guys. This is a picture of us, right? We fail. We do things that society considers wrong, or we make mistakes, and then we hide it. We hide it from each other, and we hide it from God. And we carry this around with us for years and years and years till it actually takes us over. Because I want you to know something. Pain never goes away. You can push it down but it's always going to come up someplace else and bite you in the tush, right? But here's the thing. Her husband understood. Her husband was willing to give her grace, and she couldn't accept it because she didn't believe she was worthy of it, and she didn't know, really know who her husband was, so she chose to leave him because of her pain. Now, I want you to know something. We're Stacy. We're Stacy. We have failures and mistakes and all kinds of things that we have done and are doing, and we're afraid to tell God about it. So we distance ourselves from God, we separate ourselves from other people, and we just say we're not worthy of it. When God is, Ron, willing to say, I understand how hard that must have been for you, Let, tell me about it. Let me bring you some healing. I want you to know something, you guys. We can't be Stacy. We need to know God so well that when we mess up, we don't run from him. We run to him, right? We run to him. But we're so conditioned in society to fear failure. We're so conditioned in society to fear condemnation. 
because so many times it's what we receive from our family, right? And part two of this sermonette is going to be how do we free ourselves from those messages from our childhood and from the pain and everything that we've received through our life because we simply have to get past being Stacy. We have to get past the wrong idea of God because we'll, we'll, we'll waste our life. He has too many things he wants us to experience, to enjoy, and to accomplish for us to be Stacy. Amen? Here's the truth. Here's the truth that Satan is so intent on concealing. We do not have to be successful or pleasing to others to have a healthy sense of self-esteem and worth when we know our worth is a free gift from God. Say it again. We do not have to be successful or pleasing to others ever. Ever. That has already been given to us from the Lord. We don't need it from you people. If we were healthy, healthy people who understood that our identity comes from the Lord, I want you to know we would be as bold as a lion. We wouldn't be afraid to pray for Mark at the bar during poker because we wouldn't be afraid of the world's attitudes about that, right? Because we know where identity comes from. There are four false beliefs that we agree with that causes us to suffer in the area of self-worth. The performance trap, the approval addict, the blame game, and shame. Chances are we've all participated in these lies at one time or another. Like I said, usually either we fall into one or the other because of our personality or we fall into one or another because that's our, that's our family coping mechanism. That's our family dynamics, right? Thank goodness we're stronger than our personalities. We're stronger than our family craziness. We don't have to be in bondage to either one of those things. God has given us the ability to overcome those handicaps. The performance trap. I'm going to tell you the false belief. I'm going to tell you the consequence, and I'm going to tell you what God's answer is. So the performance trap is this. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. I must perform. I must be successful either in my job or making money or being beautiful or working out or something. I have to perform. The consequences, fear of failure, perfectionism, drive to succeed, manipulations of others to achieve success, and withdrawal from healthy risks. God's answer is justification. Now, these God's answers are going to be fancy words, but I'm going to explain them. And you all know them. This is all head knowledge, right? We all probably like, oh, yeah, we all know this. Mm, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Because I'm here to tell you, if we believed all this, we'd be taking this city by storm. All of us would be. God's answer, justification. God has not only forgiven me of my sins, but also has granted me the righteousness of Christ. Because of justification, I bear Christ's righteousness and am therefore fully pleasing to the Father. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to perform to have God's approval ever again. 
The other thing about perfectionists, whoever in here is a perfectionist, I'm going to give you some bad news. Perfectionists can be quite vulnerable to serious mood disorders. They tend to defensively criticize and demand to be in control of most situations they encounter. They won't engage in activities that they won't fail in. I, I knew a guy, oh, it made me so mad. I knew a guy that ran marathons, but he would only run marathons where he was, because he was an older guy, he would only run marathons of which he was like, there's only a couple people in that age category, and he knew he would beat them. But he wouldn't run just to run. He had to run to always win. And I was like, that's messed up, dude. That's messed up. Because when your identity is on that, anything can happen. And you crack your ankle, break your hip, whatever. Now you haven't won. How are you going to live with yourself? To me, that is a miserable way to live when you can only take on things that you know you're going to win because you can't control everything like that. Most high achievers are driven beyond healthy limitations. The problem is society rewards them. In society, high achievers are kind of royalty to us, right? All the people who are loaded, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, all these people that are influencers and high achievers and tons of money, they get a lot of accolades from the world. Do they have identity issues? I bet they do. I know freaking Apple dude, Steve Jobs, he's messed up. He had relationship issues. He was horrible to work for. What a bummer. The approval addict, false belief. I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. Consequence, the fear of rejection, attempts to please others at any cost, overly sensitive to criticism, withdrawal from others to avoid disapproval. God's answer, reconciliation. This means that although I was at one time hostile toward God and alienated from him, I am now forgiven and brought into an intimate relationship with him. Consequently, I'm totally accepted by God. And that, I think, if I was to own anything, this would be my number one, would be approval addiction. I'm afraid of what people think or say about me. Wave. Wave, anybody? Right? And I feel that maybe I'm, I don't, I'm not going to ask, Chris. You can tell me later. I feel like I might be hypersensitive to criticism. <laughs> or hypersensitive. I'm not sure. Approval addicts can become codependent, controlling, hypersensitive, and easily manipulated. The blame game. False belief. Those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. Consequence. The fear of punishment, punishing others, blaming others for personal failure, withdrawal from God and others, and the drive to avoid failure. God's answer. Okay, this is a, this is a fun word. Propitiation. Propitiation which means that by his death on the cross, Christ satisfied God's wrath. Therefore, I am deeply loved by God. This is a huge issue, you guys. This means that literally, literally, especially if you're a Christian, you are unpunishable. Unpunishable. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? We shouldn't punish ourselves or other people because we're not being punished. But I think we know of a lot of people who engage in the blame game. It's not our fault. It's their fault. They're trying to deflect this idea of I 
am a failure and I'm not living up to X, Y, or Z. Um, what am I trying to say? Expectations. People who blame have bitterness, passivity, punishment of others, and fears of all sorts. Here's two major issues when we punish others for their failures. First of all, we condemn people for their genuine sins, but also for their mistakes. People make mistakes. Secondly, we believe that we should be godly agents of condemnation. I'm here to tell you that's not our job and should never be. Now, does that mean that we don't judge the fruit of a tree? We judge the fruit of a tree, right? We're not here to condemn the fruit. We can judge the fruit of a tree. We can say, this is what's coming out of this action, but it's not our job to condemn either ourselves or those people. Because here's the reality. <laughs> While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We did not earn his dying for us while we were yet sinners. And here's the deal, you guys. He died for sinners, Christians, now and yet to come. We do not know at the end who's going to be a Christian who's not going to be. God died for everyone here on earth right now exactly the way they are, junk and all. And if we think that we have the right or um, position to punish, condemn, or blame people, we're not walking in God's will. And it's messing us up too. Because when you live in a position of, I am the righteous judge, I'm the judge who gets to judge right and wrong, that comes back on you. And you're going to walk around and feel horribly inadequate because you won't live up to these expectations. And I just want to tell you not to get crazy, but we're seeing that a lot right now. We're seeing a lot of blame. I'm this way because these people did X, Y, or Z to me. Hello? Hello? Has that wor is that working for us as a country? Is that working for us to say, because of you, I don't have this. Because of you, I'm X, Y, or Z. That blame game, I call that um, a poverty mentality, spirit of, of entitlement. I'm entitled to X, Y, or Z because I've been done wrong. I just want you to know something that is not God's will for our life. If we would take our eyes off of blame and put them on the Lord, doors of opportunity would open for us like we've never seen before. But the enemy's tactic is to get us to focus on what's wrong in our life and why it's wrong instead of what God is calling us to and instead of our, our identity in Christ. Thank you. Um, all of us know somebody who plays the blame game, who's, who's been entitled. I've, I personally have worked in, um, I've worked in social services back in North Carolina, and I did, um, you know, I qualified people for like AFDC, which is um, cash benefits to, to people who have kids, or um, Medicaid or whatever. And my opinion when I came out of that was is we were teaching people to, to be dependent on a system. We're teaching people to be victims. We're teaching people to be in, entitled. And that goes against the very word of God. And we as Christians, if we're going to be involved at a, at a national level, we have to find a message that teaches the empowerment of people without um, indulging a victim mentality. Now, does that mean that we can't, um, we can't have justice? It doesn't mean that. God is a God of justice. 
right? But when we go so far as to continually point the finger and have the blame game over and over, you are stuck. You're going to be stuck always in this, this cesspool of blame and focusing on your failures, focusing on what you don't have, instead focusing on the Lord and what your identity really is. is are you guys getting that? Is that anything that strikes you at all? And I mean, we all do it, right? We all look back at our parents or our family and be like, well, if my dad hadn't, you know, been so chauvinistic, I'd be different, you know? Or if, if my parents, you know, to put me in sports, maybe I would have had a better high school experience, whatever. And, you know, there's some truth in that. And there's nothing wrong with identifying what was messed up in our families, but then we leave it and we go on. We overcome that and we go on. But when you're stuck in the blame game, you are stuck in poverty. I'm straight up the truth. You're stuck in poverty because you're listening to a lie. And the, the agenda of the enemy is to keep us stuck and powerless, to keep us ineffective. Once we become effective, his kingdom is in trouble. Once we know our identity, his kingdom is in trouble and he does not want that. What did he do to, to Eve? He deceived her. He deceived her about her true identity and he's doing it to us over and over and over. And we need to look at society and realize they're being deceived. How do we come against their deception? We can't condemn them. We have no right to condemn. How do we minister to them in, a, in their deception is the question we ask ourselves. And to ourselves. How do we minister to ourselves in our own deception? Many psychologists today adhere to a theory called rational emotive therapy, which says that blame is the core of most emotional disturbances. Blame. Self-blame and blame of others. That's how big blame is. And I just want you to know, do you remember the blame that began in the garden? That woman you gave me, blame gave me. What did that do? It, it divided them. They were now divided. It is possible, you guys, that Adam could have resisted, you know, Eve was deceived. She could have not been deceived. And Adam could have not gone along with his wife. That's another possibility that could have happened. He could have said to the Lord, yeah, you know, I... I took the apple and I shouldn't have. I, I, it was wrong. But instead he said, that woman that you put in the garden, she gave it to me. That didn't work out well for them. Or us. The last one is shame. False belief. I am what I am. I cannot change. I am hopeless. The consequence, feelings of shame, hopelessness, and inferiority, passivity, loss of creation, isolation, withdrawal from others. God's answer is regeneration, which means I am a new creation in Christ. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. People who believe the lies of shame can exhibit. This is a lot of addictive motivations. Habitually destructive behavior, alcoholism, addiction, all that. I just can't stop, so I won't. I'm a bad person. This is who I am. Self-pity. Passivity, isolation, withdrawal, codependent relationships. In an attempt to cover their shame, many people become codependent. That is, they depend on being needed by a family member or friend who has an addictive problem or compulsion. Codependents thus develop a need to rescue and take care of others. This caretaking is the codependent subconscious way of trying to gain personal significance. 
So what are the consequences if we choose to believe God's solution? If we're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to identify the areas in which I'm believing lies. I'm going to actually trust God for the answer. What are the consequences? The consequences from the performance trap? Freedom from the fear of failure. We don't have to fear failure anymore. We can fail up. We can, we can say, failure is going to grow me. I'm going to fail, 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 fail. And failure no longer becomes a four-letter word or a dirty word. It becomes something that we um, use to grow more and more. We're not afraid. Of it. We're not afraid about talking about it. We're not afraid about risks. Let's go fail. Approval addiction. Freedom from the fear of rejection. Open to vulnerability. Willingness to take criticism. Desire to please God no matter what others think. This is me. This is what I need to work on right here. Desire to please God no matter what others think. That's a hard one for me. The blame game. If we do it God's way, we have freedom from fear of punishment. We have patience and kindness towards others, being quick to apply forgiveness and a deep love for Christ because we know what he's done for us. And shame. If we do it God's way, we have Christ-centered self-confidence, joy, courage, peace, and a desire to know Christ. So here's the deal. Here's my conclusion, you guys. And next week, or next time I talk, we'll go into how we identify this and how do we root it out of our lives, okay? But I want to go back to kind of an underlying, underpinning theme that we have here at Supper Club, which is the, um, our Lazarus story again, right? Lazarus is dead in the grave, his identity is shot, right? Because he's dead, right? So he doesn't have an identity. He's just flat out dead, right? He and, right? He's dead. He's dead. He's molding. He's, he's, he smells bad. He can't move around. He's dead. Suffice it to say he has an identity issue, right? He, he's, not, he's not living out his destiny because he's dead. He encounters Christ. Christ says, Lazarus, come forth. He, Christ talks to him specifically and says, I want you to come forth. I want you to be regenerated. Lazarus comes forth, and then Jesus says to the people around him, his friends, now you take off, take off his grave clothes. Unbind him. Set him free so now he can walk in his destiny. So when we're talking about the search for significance in our marriage group and in our men's group and any interaction that we have, we're going to be the friends that unbind each other's grave clothes. And we're going to remind each other, what's your significance? What's your gift? What's your identity? What does God say about you? And, oh, by the way, I'm not going to let you say that about you. Like, whatever negative thing you're saying about yourself, I'm not, going to, I'm not joining in on that. In fact, I'm going to push back on you for saying that. Because I, I can't listen to you say bad things about yourself anymore because that's not what Jesus says about you. So I'm not going to agree with that. And it's super-duper important, you guys, that as we operate as a community that we unbind each other's grave clothes intentionally, purposefully, not just because, not as, not as a um, byproduct, but as an intentional activity with each other. That is love, right? Like our marriage class and the men's group, we have been intentional in doing certain things. I want us to go to the next level where we're intentional about unveiling each other's identity. When someone has um, a prayer need or a, um, a painful thing, an emotional painful thing, I want them to be able to go to us and say, can you pray for me? And I want us to be able to look at each other and say, this is what I see God 
wanting to talk to you or do or, or this is the blessing of what God has for you. You know, uh, at Easter, I thought this was so sweet. And I'm like, I got to do this more. Nathan McLean came to um, our meeting here. And we went over to Kurt's and uh, Tracy's. And he came up to me and Chris and he said, you know, as I was driving here, I prayed and asked the Lord to give me a prophetic word for you guys. And I'm like, why don't I do that more often? Why don't I go, Lord, give me a prophetic word for people? Why don't I think about that, of how to release that into people's lives? And then he gave us the sweetest prophetic word. I want us to be that to each other. I want us to be each other's cheerleaders when it comes to our identity. Because I think, I believe that's the only way we end up making a difference in this world, you guys, is if we walk in our true identity. So I'm going to just close this out and pray. And if anyone, you know what, if any, we can pray for Steve. You wanna, we'll pray for your um, arm if you come up here. Oh, I do have a, can I share your, this is so cool, you guys. Again, I love this. Um, we were praying last week, and we were praying for Tina, and I, and I did the Bethel uh, prayer, which is, you know, this is going out on a limb. And I said, Lord, I said, we pray for financial blessing for Tina. She doesn't have to worry about her medical bills, blah, blah, and checks in the mail. It seems so corny, right? Checks in the mail, Lord. And she um, texted me two days later, and she got a check in the mail from her, um, from her uh, I don't know, investment. Yeah, she was supposed to get something from her settlement or whatever. But I'm like, Lord, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. Let's go out on a limb and make some crazy prayer requests of the Lord and see him show up for us and then, like, celebrate it together, right? I want to do that. All right, I'll, I'll close this out in prayer, and then I'd love to pray for you, Steve, if that's okay for your arm. And anybody else who wants to come up, I'd love to pray for you guys. So let's just pray right now. Lord, thank you so much. I love these people. I really love them so much. I love that they're patient with me and they affirm me and... I love it that we get to be family together and do life together, God. I pray that you would increase our knowledge of who we are to you and who you are to us and that we would walk in boldness, that we wouldn't be afraid to fail. Lord, that failure would be success to us. Failure would be falling, failing up. We would fail up, Lord, that we wouldn't blame each other or blame our parents or blame ourselves. We're quick to forgive quick to forgive and not need the approval of anyone but you, Lord. And you've already given it to us, so we really don't need approval. Approval is not anything we need. We already have it. Bring boldness to us, Lord. Bring us miracles and supernatural signs and wonders. Financial blessing to Tina. Checks in the mail. Healing, physical healing, Lord. We just love you, Lord. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.